you. I'm Kim. And I'm Tara. Welcome to Unapologetically You. Hey, Kim. Yeah? Have you ever been on a hit list? Say what? No. Well, our guest Jillian has, and that's just the tip of the iceberg with her story. Imagine finding out at 16 that your whole life has been a complete lie. After all of the intense experiences Jillian shares with us, she's now made it her mission to help others. Stay tuned for Jillian's incredible story. Don't forget to like us on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetically You Podcast. And please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in on so that we can continue to inspire you. Welcome, Jillian. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. Jillian, you have a very intense story to share with us today. You are a body positive and self-love advocate, but you haven't always been that way. You shared with us that you didn't really know who you were until 16 years of age. So I guess what led you to that discovery? I mean, there was a lot because whenever I turned 16, it was kind of like my entire world just kind of blew up. And I learned a lot of secrets that were hidden from me. And most of my childhood I learned was a complete lie. There was a lot of awakening that happened between the relationship of my mom and I that happened when I was 16. And that's whenever I started to learn about all the secrets hidden in the closet (laughs) that my mom was not so innocent as I thought that she was. And it flipped my whole world upside down. And so that's that's what kind of put me on the journey that I've been on and then just continuously growing into today. Well, and I can't even imagine some of the, um, so our listeners at home know that we get background information from our guests. And when Tara and I were reading through it, we were like, oh my God, we'll get to all the the details. But like as a 16 year old, when you find out what is going on or the changes that are happening, when you find out the truth at 16, I mean, that's such a developmental age where Every, your whole world, the whole idea of what your world looks like is shattered. And I, I can't imagine going through that at that age specifically, at like that pivotal point in your life. There was like a level of abuse that existed in your life as a child. So why don't we touch upon how that even happened? Yeah, so it kind of started, uh, my mom was married to a guy who never even adopted me. He wasn't my stepfather. He is the father of my siblings. Um, but... I wasn't his child and he made sure that I remembered that. And again, like I didn't learn about the stuff with my mom until I was 16, but my childhood before I knew everything, all I ever saw was the abuse on her too. He was always attacking her and I would try to defend her and he would come after me. And so that was like that for about 13 years because he got into my mom's life whenever I think I was two, two or three. And until she left him. That's how it was. And then it actually flipped. So after he was out of the picture, that's whenever everything started to change with my mom. And the abuse started coming from my mom's side. And it wasn't as physical. Now with him, it was very much physical most of my life. And it was very much emotional too. I can actually distinctly remember one of the first things that sticks into my head. And it's one of the reasons I became a body positive advocate was I can remember being six years old and I was sitting on the couch with like a bag of sour cream and onion chips watching some TV show. And he comes in and he looks at me and he was like, no one's ever going to like you because you're going to be fat because that's all you do is eat those chips. And I was six. 
And so that really stuck with me. But then as I got older and he got out of the picture and I started to learn about my mom, it flipped. So it wasn't physical with my mom anymore. It was emotional. It was a ton of manipulation that came from my mom's side. And so honestly, I was dealing with the manipulation abuse until three years ago, whenever I finally got the PFA against her. And then for a solid year, I was in a relationship with a guy who severely abused me, um, emotionally, physically, and sexually for an entire year. And so abuse was really prevalent in my life, whether it be either of the forms, really until three years ago. Wow. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. I I can't imagine, especially like you said, that story, like we all have memories of different traumatic events that happened to us, but like at six years old, that too is like, you're just developing into your little self, you know, you're like figuring out who you are and what like this whole world is. And when you get like verbal abuse like that, I mean, that literally determines like who you're going to be until you have the right mind to choose to recognize you're not that abuse, right? So when you turned 16, what exactly happened? Whenever I turned 16, we were still living in North Carolina. We moved there. And then so when I was 16, my mom asked me where I wanted to graduate from. And I said I wanted to go home. I wanted to come back home to Pennsylvania. And so we moved home. And it started with her slowly blaming me for the reason she was miserable and had to move home. And then my mom lived at bars. Still does, I think. I don't talk to her much anymore. But from what I hear, she still does. It was very, very common that I would have to be the one to go pick her up. And I didn't even have a license yet. And so the one night I went to go pick her up from the bar, we were driving home. And she just got this overwhelming amount of just anger and resentment that overcame her while she was heavily intoxicated and high, which I hadn't known yet. She grabbed the steering wheel and she tried to run us off of a cliff. Oh my God. I stopped the car. I got her home and I kind of just kind of let that night go. And then a couple weeks later, I woke up in the morning and I went into the bedroom and she had two massive black eyes. And I looked at her and I said, what happened? And she got into a bar fight with a family friend of mine and, or not a family friend. It was my cousin. And she, um, she blamed my cousin for the entire ordeal. And so my naive thinking, I'm thinking it's not my mom's fault. My mom was a victim of this bar fight, but it started to raise a bunch of questions. At the same time, I wanted to know who my dad was. So when I was born, my mom was in a relationship with a woman. They were living in San Diego because she was in the Navy and they wanted to have a child. So she slept with my dad, never told him about me. Then she moved to Washington, lived in Washington for a little bit until my grandpa drove over and drove us home. That's whenever she met her ex-husband and was with him for a long time. And so I never knew my dad and my dad never knew me. And he never knew I even existed. So at 16, I really wanted to know who he was. She wasn't okay with it. She always told me that if I wanted to know who he was, she would tell me. But she was never okay with it. But I knew, and I don't know how she got it. My mom does some pretty sketchy things. I don't know how she got it, but she had his social security number on a piece of paper in her jewelry box. How she got it from a one-night stand, I have no idea. But I knew it was there. And so I went and I got it. And... The court system in the town I was living in really helped me out. They helped me get a private investigator. She's basically a people finder. And she helped me find my dad. And my mom was beyond angry. But I didn't know how angry until 
I was confronted by my grandparents and a very, very close trusted friend at the time of my family asking if I stole an eight ball out of my mom's jewelry box. And I didn't know what an eight ball was. And I looked at them and I said, is this like a magic eight ball? Like what? Right. Why is right. it a big yeah. deal? I don't know what this is. And they were like, well, clearly you didn't steal this because you have no idea what we're even talking about. But an eight ball is a ball of Coke or it's an amount of Coke. I, I'm, I don't know anything about it. I don't even know what it, I just know it's something to do with Coke. Yeah. yeah. I know it's something to do with drugs. And I was like, no, but why did you even have that? And why am I being confronted of this? That's whenever the truth started to unfold. That's whenever I found out that the first time we moved to North Carolina was because my mom had, she didn't really lose the drugs. Her ex-husband flushed them down the toilet. But it was a large amount of money and drugs that she got us put on a hit list. And we had to move to North Carolina. And we were only there for six months the first time because the guy that she was dealing with apparently died. And so we came right back home. And I didn't know that until this whole eight ball conversation came up. That's whenever I learned about the drug problem that my mom had had since before I was even born. And that's whenever I found out that my grandpa actually gave her an ultimatum because of her drug issues and stuff as a child, like as a teenager and everything, he was like, you go to the military or you're done. And that's why she went into the Navy. And I didn't know any of this. I thought she just went into the Navy because I came from a military family. That's when I learned about the drug problems. Um, I found my dad and everything just kind of blew up. I was kind of tossed out of my mom's house for all of that. But I also left her house. Like it was a mix of both because I was in and out of her house multiple times. She would throw me out, then I would leave, and then she'd throw me out again, and then I would leave. Eventually, I just ended up living at my grandparents permanently. At 16 years old to find out like, oh, we were on a hit list? That's significant, deep, scary shit. You know what I mean? Like, And for a child, you know, like I, I know that all of us when we were like 16, 17, 18 years old, we thought we were like, on top of our game. We knew what we were doing. You know, we were adults in our heads, but like you're a baby. And like to get that significant information, I mean, that, that had to have completely turned your world upside down. It did. And I only got bits and pieces of it from my mom over the years. So like the truth I was finding out from my family, my aunt and my uncle and my grandparents and close family friends of my mom's, I was starting to get little bits and pieces of the truth. Like, oh, you know, we were so close to you guys with the kids because we wanted to protect you guys. I had no idea. I thought you were just friends with my mom. And so my mom to this day will still deny, of course, most of it. But there's nights when she'll go a little far off the deep end and she'll admit to something or she'll just look at me with like no remorse, no regret, but it's little bits and pieces. And it's like years later when I finally get the truth from her. So I got it from everyone else at 16. She would deny all of it. And then like around 20 and stuff, I would start getting little bits and pieces from her that, oh yeah, I did do that and stuff. This was the reason we did this. Yeah. So that even causes even more conflict. I mean, internally for yourself, because you've got your whole family here telling you all these things and your mom denying it. And I'm sure like you're sitting there going, what do I do? Who do I believe? Yeah. And to this day, it's still a struggle. Did any of it make, like, once you found out, like, my mom has been doing drugs like this, did any of it click to you, like, previously? Yes. As soon as I found out. So before we moved to North Carolina the first time, 
there was a big fight that happened between my mom and her ex-husband. This fight is just like burned into my memory. But I can distinctly remember we lived in a house that was like two seconds away from my grandparents' house. And I had two of my best friends staying the night. And my mom's ex-husband's mom, so my step-grandmother, I guess, was watching us. So we were like 13, having a sleepover. And my one friend's mom comes barreling through the door and is like, let's go, let's go, we need to leave right now, like, so-and-so is off their shit, like, we need to leave, and so she took her daughter and left, and I'm sitting there like, okay, well, my friend just left, like, what is going on, everyone's freaking out, why, what is happening right now, my other best friend was still, was with me the whole night that this happened, and I have three younger siblings as well who were all there for this, and so my mom's best friend comes running in the door and is like, kids, come on, we gotta go upstairs right now, quickly, let's go upstairs, and I'm saying, you know, what is happening, what is happening, what is happening, and so we get upstairs, and I hear my mom come in, and she's screaming, and she's crying, I can hear like, what did you do with it, why did you do that, and then I hear her ex-husband coming in saying, where's the money, where's the money, what'd you do with the money, where'd this all go, and they're screaming at each other, and I remember I was looking down the steps. And when you looked down our steps, you could see out the front door. And right outside the front door, we had a concrete porch with three steps that went down to a sidewalk. I was looking down the steps and my mom's best friend is trying to block me with her arm. And I can see my mom's ex-husband holding my mom by her throat above the steps and not letting her feet touch the steps. And he's screaming at her, where's the money? So I broke down under my mom's friend's arm, ran down the steps, and I yelled at him to stop. And that's whenever he came in after me. He threw, we had like a phone wall on the wall, and he threw that at my back. There was a knife thrown, and then we had like a glass table that got shattered. The police ended up coming, and I remember his mom was cheering him on the whole time. What? Yeah. And I didn't understand at the time why this was happening. The police came, they arrested him. Two days later, he shows up with a bouquet of flowers and apologizes. One week later, we moved to North Carolina. It clicked. At 16, mm -hmm. I get told, that's the large amount of coke. That was, he, he flushed it down the toilet, which meant she was in debt, a ridiculous amount of money. Right. And that's why he's asking where the money is. And I was like, Oh my God, this makes so much sense now why this happened. Right. Another thing that clicked was like, she would never let us touch the ice trays. Like we weren't allowed to refill the ice trays or empty them and stuff. And it was because she would keep little baggies of Coke in the bottom of the ice trays. Like there were just little things that started clicking because I learned about it later on. Right. Yeah. Right. And I was like, well, this makes sense now. And her mood swings and stuff. Whenever I learned about it, I was like, this is what it looks like whenever she's coming off of a high. Like, I get this now. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. There were times whenever it just, it clicked. Well, that's absolutely awful and to have those vivid memories to have those memories like sit with you like that's a lot of inner work that you had to do to work through all of that so at 18 then you tried to actually find your dad right when you found your dad what happened like how was that that was actually a really great story I hired this PA but I can't really even say that I hired her because she was a phenomenal lady and she calls me and it was easy for her because I had his soch. Yeah, yeah. And right. so that part was easy on her. I asked her because I was afraid, like, how much is this going to cost? Like, I'm only 18 and stuff. And my grandparents didn't even know yet that I was doing this. Yeah. And she's on the phone with me and she goes, what's your favorite restaurant? And at the time, I'm like, I don't know, Olive Garden. And she goes, how much does it cost you to eat there? And I said, I think like 15 bucks or something. And she goes, just pay me that amount 
and write a letter to the judge explaining what happens after we find your dad. And I was like, okay. So within like two days, I get a call and it says, I found him and he really wants to meet you. And sure enough, a day later, he did an 18 hour drive from Oklahoma all the way to PA to come see me. Whenever she called him, she asked if this was his name and he's like, yeah. And she's like, were you in the Navy at this time? And he's like, yeah. And she said, you have an 18 year old daughter. And his first response was, hold up. I can't afford to pay 18 years of packed up child support. Like, what? (laughs) And she goes, no, 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 no. That's not what this is. She just wants a relationship. And he goes, okay, well, like, obviously I'd want to do a blood test and all this stuff. And she's like, yeah, I understand. She's like, but I also just want you to see a picture of her. And he was like, okay. So he opens up the picture of me. And he said, as soon as he saw my picture, he was like, that's my kid. Because we look a good deal alike. He was like, that's my kid. There's no doubt about it. That's my kid. And so he drove, he immediately like got in the car and drove 18 hours up to come meet me. And I'll never forget because I slept in the, the basement of my grandparents' house. I had like my own little room down there. And my bed was against the steps that came down the, that came down from the door. And I'm sleeping. It's like 2 a.m. And I hear the steps clonking down. And my dad is a very large man. He's a bodybuilder. Like he's a very large man. And he's also freakishly tall. So he was not very quiet coming down these stairs. And I looked up and I, of course, like recognize him from a picture. But he looked at me, he's like, hey, darling, you need to clean this room up. And I was like, what? Like, who, who are you? You're here. And he was like, can I just hug you? And I said, yeah. And so we got to know each other. The school was really supportive about it, too, because they let me have like two days off of school without counting it against me just so I could spend time with them. He was like, you know, I want to make this father daughter relationship work if you do. And I said, absolutely. So we were really, really close for a long time in the beginning. And it was it was great getting to meet him first. So and I found out that I have a brother 11 months younger than me on his side. Oh, that's great. All right. So once you met your dad, I mean, not that by any means, meeting your dad does not like make up for the childhood that you had, no matter how great of a a relationship you had, no matter how that is, like you're, you still have this like horrific childhood experience that you have to work through. But you decide that you want to get into criminology. You ended up doing that, right? You got your degree in criminology. And then that's when you got into an abusive relationship, right? Yeah, it was my sophomore year of college. He was actually a close friend of mine. We went to high school together. So we were from the same hometown and stuff. We were also going to college together and we were both criminology majors. And so our lives were super intertwined. He was a good friend of mine for a long time. And so I trusted him and I had no idea the side of him that existed. Uh, And then whenever we got together, the first sign was uh, he really wanted me to join a sorority. And he was in a fraternity, but the specific sorority he wanted me to join was the sister sorority to his fraternity. Lo and behold, I found out later it was so he could keep tabs on me. Throughout our relationship, there were this stuff that he did to me. If I ever stepped out of line, for instance, one of the, and it was just a little thing. But one of the things that he did if I stepped out of line to him was he would pinch the back of my arm. Like if I needed to straighten up or I said something he didn't like, he'd pinch the back of my arm. Then it progressed from there. He would get drunk, very, very drunk, and would hit me. And there was one night we were sitting on his bed. And the way his bed was in his room at the apartment was like half of it was against a wall. And so I was on the side against the wall and he was on the edge. He was playing a video game. And so I had to crawl around him to get off of this bed to go to the re- to go to the bathroom. And so I 
walked in front of the TV that he was playing video game and his character died in this video game. And he made me sit back down and write a three page paper front and back single spaced on why I shouldn't walk in front of the TV while blank, blank, blank is playing Call of Duty Active Warfare. And then he had his roommates proofread it. What the hell? It was, keep in mind, it was like one in the morning and it was raining outside and it was February in Pennsylvania. And if I didn't do this, I was to walk home by myself and it was easily a good mile to a mile and a half across campus and town to get to my apartment. Yeah. And they proofread it and he was like, this isn't good enough. You have to fix this. And so that's when I said no. And he made me walk home. Oh my God. That's God awful, A. But like shame on his friends for also, like who the hell, if some, if one of my friends is like, you're going to proofread this paper that my girlfriend just wrote, I'd be like, are you batshit crazy? Right? Like how yeah. do you. His friends thought it was hilarious. And then, like, if we were intimate together, he had a poster of a very famous model above his bed. And if we were intimate together, he'd be like, I would find this so much more attractive if you looked like her. Oh, my God. There were times when I didn't want to do certain things. uh, And I said no, that he would force me to do. So over the course of the year, looking back at it and going through therapy, and obviously going through victimology training, he raped me uh, quite a few times throughout our relationship. Uh, Towards the end of the school year, there was a big party happening. I didn't like to, like, I mean, I was in college. There were definitely times when I got drunk. But I didn't like to get drunk around him for obvious reasons. And he was drunk again. And I walked out to go check on him. And he threw the beer can at my head and started screaming. So I left and I went up to my apartment. And one of his fraternity brothers, who happened to be a very, very close friend of mine since freshman year, that I knew before I ever got in a relationship with this guy, followed me to make sure I was okay because he saw what had just happened to me and he wanted to make sure it was okay. Within a couple of minutes, my ex had followed us up there and he came in and he was screaming. He did so much damage to my apartment that I ended up having to pay for. He broke the bed of my roommate's room and stuff and just flipped everything upside down. And his fraternity brother was trying to get him to stop. I tried leaving him after that, but then... I was living with him at his parents' house whenever we would go home and stuff. So our lives were super intertwined with that. So it was really hard. What finally made me leave him was after we left home for the summer, I was at work. And at the time, I was working at Tractor Supply. Very masculine farm store. And I was trying to sell, I don't know, some 40 or 50-year-old guy a chainsaw. When I get a text message that says, I know you're talking to a guy. Who is it? And why are you doing this? And I was like, first of all, who do you have following me? Because I know you're at home. Second of all, why the heck does it matter? Like, I'm talking to a customer, and why can't I talk to someone? And so I ended up leaving work, went to the house, and I looked at him. I was like, we're done. I'm I'm done. Because at this point, he had people following me, and so I was afraid for my life. Yeah. And so I grabbed my stuff. I left. I went to my grandma's house. Well, actually, so when I walked in the door to go get my stuff, I looked at him. I was like, are you serious? Like, why Why did you do that? Why did you send me that text? Why are you following me? And he goes, can you shut the F up? I'm playing FIFA. Stupid soccer video game thing. Oh, my God. So I grabbed my stuff and I left. And he tried to come, like, fix things and everything. And I just wasn't having it. And within actually a month or two, I actually met my now husband, who is the most amazing person on the planet. And when I met my husband, uh, my ex just bashed me on social media, just 
absolutely said every cruel thing that he possibly could. And so that was like a personal relationship abuse that was different from the family stuff that I had endured. Add that on to it. You know what I mean? Like the the thing is, is like what people, some people I think don't understand. Like a lot of people are always like, well, why did you stay in that relationship? Like why, why did, why did you even get into it? And it's for a lot of those people, they don't recognize like the severe long-term damage that trauma in your earlier life has on the rest of your life. You probably thought that was semi-normal. You know what I mean? Like, this is what you've seen. I did. I did. Because that's what I grew up with. And in the same instance, he was also my best friend for a while before we got together. So I knew that there was a good side to him. And it was beyond manipulative, you know, the cycle of violence that would happen. It's the cycle of abuse. And I taught on it all the time as a victim's advocate. But things would be great. tension would build explosive action and then it was the honeymoon stage and he'd apologize apologize but make me feel guilty when he was apologizing well at least the joy that came out of that is meeting your husband (laughs) yes he's wonderful after you met your husband how long was it until you guys ended up getting married so we go out on our first day we go to the drive-in movie theaters it was um fast and furious 6 and jurassic world And so we kept going on dates the rest of that week. The first time in my life, he was a light. He was so intensely kind and just loving and was someone, a personality and a caring heart that I'd never experienced before. I mean, we were only dating for, I mean, we were were going out on dates for a week. But so we got together on 4th of July in 2015. A year later, we bought our first house together. So in 2016, we bought our house. In 2017, we got engaged. On February 24th of 2018, we were married. And then on October 4th, on October 1st of 2019, we just gave birth to our first baby girl. Aww. So she's turning one on Thursday. She's turning one here coming up on Thursday. Aww. So. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting. That's amazing. Yeah, I was a victim's advocate for a county here in PA um, for two years. I specialized in working with victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, human trafficking, and homicide. And I loved it. Absolutely. Like, I worked my butt off for that job. So, like I said, I started my criminology degree in 10th grade or in sophomore year of college. And I actually graduated early. I got that degree done in two and a half years. So, I actually graduated in a total of three and a half years from college. Awesome. Um, And that's with switching majors. And so, because that's what I knew I wanted to do. So I became a victim's advocate. I was on call for hospitals and court systems all the time. And I absolutely loved it. It was my passion. I was able to help people that I could relate to on so many different levels. I understood them more than most people do. Because people don't realize how much questions can be victim blaming, even if they don't mean it to be. Sure. Just asking the simple question of, well, why were you in this location at that time? Like, is so victim blaming. It's not even funny. Yeah. So I can relate on that level. And um, the reason I'm no longer is because I was on my way to work one morning. And I was stopped at a stoplight behind a Toyota Tacoma. And I was in a little Chevy Cruze. And there was a Jeep coming behind me at 50 miles an hour that didn't see us stopped. And sandwiched me between it and the Toyota Tacoma. From that accident, I had a grade three concussion and two brain bruises. 
I wasn't allowed to drive for about six months. Um, and I was in physical therapy for in vestibular therapy for a year and a half. And so since I couldn't drive anymore, they needed to fill the position. Uh, you know, there yeah. were only there were only a handful of advocates and stuff. So they needed to get another advocate in there. And I we didn't know they were expecting me to take three years to recover. And so we didn't know how long I'd be out and stuff. So I had to leave my job focused on physical therapy and stuff. Amongst all of this, um, I actually have chronic stroke migraines. They're a rare form of complex migraines that present as a stroke. And that's when I got introduced to holistic medicine. I got introduced to essential oils and I fell in love with them. With my recovery from the car accident, they were expecting me to take three years. I was on top of the vestibular therapy and the physical therapy. I was doing a very strict oil holistic medicine protocol and they were only expecting me to go to like 80% basically. And I hit a hundred percent recovery in a year and a half. Amazing. Day I 100, like I will never say that essential oils can cure anything, but I 100% like attribute that to that, (laughs) to, to, to what I was doing. So whenever I walked, like whenever I was leaving physical therapy, my husband and I were trying to figure out what to do with my career. Cause at this point, like, I wasn't really doing anything. Um, I had been in therapy for so long. And I had had two life-changing events happen with holistic medicine that I decided to go full-time. And so now I sell essential oils full-time. And I absolutely love it because my core passion is to help other people. And so as a victim's advocate, that's why I got into victim advocate work. And it was because, you know, I had a level of empathy with them. Same thing with essential oils. You know, I meet people every single day with so many different health issues and I can relate on so many levels with them. Yeah. Even from a trauma perspective, I work with so many different people who have different stressors and trauma in their life and stuff who just want something to help calm anxious feelings with that. And the big difference between the two that fills my cup all the time is as a victim's advocate, even though I loved the work, I would meet a victim maybe once, maybe twice, and then that was it. Our journeys didn't last very long. Doing what I do now, I'm able to be on this journey with the people I work with all the time. I can help them all of the time and see the end results as to how the essential oils and everything are working for them. Very cool. So that's what I do now. Um And I definitely still have a heart for victim advocacy work. I was actually a volunteer director of an advocacy program for a human trafficking, anti-human trafficking organization for, um, for a while and stuff. So it's definitely at the core heart of, of my passions, but at my current state with all of the therapy I've had to go through and doing everything and having my daughter and then what I've gone through with my overcoming postpartum depression and stuff. I know that for my mental health sake to show up as the best mom I can be for my daughter, I can't be in the field right now. So I need to be able to be there for her. And if I go into the field, it's going to wreak havoc on my mental health. And I, and I know that I can't do that right now. So I hope someday in the future I could get back into the field, but right now my sole focus is my kid. That's awesome. And you've, you've overcome so much in your life to be like who you are. Like if our listeners could see you, like you're nonstop smiling, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like your past doesn't define who you, who you can be. So Jillian, what advice would you give to someone who went through a traumatic childhood and is kind of looking to work through that? For me personally, I'm very grounded in my faith now. Um, My husband brought me back into my faith and not everyone believes in God and not everyone has faith at that level. But what I would recommend is anyone trying to overcome trauma, believe in something, believe in something bigger and something good. Because 
no matter how hard things are, there's always good in the world. And so whether that's believing in the goodness of God, whether that's believing in the goodness of humanity, the goodness in yourself, knowing that you are meant to be a, a better person than what the past has brought into your life, just hold on to that. Hold on to the goodness because it's so easy in a trauma-filled world to be blind to just absolutely be blinded by the negativity and the overwhelming anxiety that comes from all of it. Ultimately, it is your life. And it takes a hell of a lot of work to get through it. Some people never get past it. I'm still not past it. There's still nights when I have flashbacks. I have a past of depression and anxiety because of all of this. So it was easier for me to, you know, have postpartum depression and everything. I still actively fight battles all the time. But just keep fighting and know that, especially whenever you get to the age where you can start making decisions for yourself. As a child, it's so much harder. But when you get to the age when you can start making decisions for yourself... It's your cards to play. And it's so hard to break relationships. I understand that 100%. I have a PFA against my mom, which was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. But it was also the most freeing thing I could have done because I didn't have to worry. And I know that a lot of people are going to say a PFA is just a piece of paper. But for me, it was a different scenario. And so for me, I didn't have to worry anymore. Cutting out 90% of my family that was toxic in my life not only gave me peace of mind in my own sanity, but it gave me peace of mind for my family, knowing that my child's not going to have to grow up knowing the toxicity that came from my side of the family and stuff. So it's your cards to play. Go ahead and just make your own decisions for your life and cut out the toxicity, whether it be relationships or bad habits. And it's going to be its so much easier said than done. So much easier said than done. But it's worth it. That's such great advice. Um, what have you learned about yourself going through this entire process? That's hard to answer because I'm still learning. Because there's been different levels. There's been different levels of it. I learned from my family that I can be free of them, that I can make the decision to be free of them. But I'm still learning right now to be able to believe in myself. With the postpartum depression and stuff happening to basically rediscover myself as who I am as a mom, you know, having confidence that I can be a good mom and a good career professional in my world of owning my own business and stuff, like I'm still learning. So that's that's a little more difficult for me to answer with that one. <laughs> I'm still in the process. But that's good. We're all still learning, sister. That's for sure. What do you think has been the hardest part about your journey? I think the hardest part was being able to come to terms with all of it and being able to talk about it. For the longest time, I wouldn't talk about it for two different reasons. One was obviously I didn't want to bring the I didn't want to bring the memories back up in my in and think about it. Second thing is my family. I mean, just a few weeks ago, whenever I posted that picture that you guys reached out to me about um, about my past. My sister got on and laughed at it. And I get so much backlash for speaking out against my family. And so some of it was definitely fear of retaliation from my family or reaction from them. But I've really just grown to not care. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm getting yeah. better at it. I'm a very emotionally connected person. And so I feel emotions very deeply, whether it's other people's emotions or my emotions, whereas my husband is very much a stoic. And so this is where, you know, there's so many things that him and I equal each other out on very well in our marriage. And this is one of the things that he helps me out with so much because being a stoic the way that he is, yeah. he's able to help me rem- remind myself that I can't control their reactions. All I can control is my reaction towards what they're doing. And they have no part of my life anymore. None. 
which means their reactions should have no part of my life. So yeah. that was the hardest. That was probably definitely the hardest part with yeah. being able to come to terms with that. And it's still something I'm working on every day. Um, what do you hope the takeaway is of your story for our listeners? It's going to sound so cliche, but honestly, it's that anything is possible. Looking back 10 years ago, I mean, heck, five years ago, this is not what I pictured my life to look like. Anything is absolutely possible. I thought for the longest time I was going to be in the same path with my family, that I was going to be stuck in their cycle of drama and abuse and drug use and stuff. And I'm not. And that was hard to do, but it was possible. Have the strength and the courage to go out on your own to do what you need to do to be able to live the life that you want for yourself. And again, it's easier said than done, but in the end, it's it's worth it. If you're happy, that's what matters. And so I guess that's what my lesson is, is like, if I can overcome, anyone can. Your story is so impactful on so many different levels. You know, we've all experienced childhood trauma, but hearing from you, the trauma that you've gone through in your childhood as a young adult, but now seeing you on the other side, your vulnerability and your honesty was saying that you're still working through some of these things, but look at how great your life is already. Before we go, we just have some lighthearted, fun pop questions for you. Are you a coffee or tea kind of girl? Coffee all the way. I love coffee. If you were a superhero, what would your power be? Unlimited bravery. That is a good oh, one. Oh, that's a good one. That's awesome. I think that'd be cool. I'd love to see what I could do if I just let go of some stuff and really embrace courage. What is your most used emoji? Hearts. <laughs> just all different <laughs> colors. great hearts. Yes. Um, how do you feel about pineapple on pizza? I love pineapple so much. All right. To each their own. <laughs> Are you a morning person or a night owl? Depends on if my kid had me up all night or not. <laughs> Valid yeah. points. Valid points. I, I like to think of myself as a night owl, but honestly, I'm usually falling asleep by like 10 o'clock. Yeah. And I really hate getting up early in the morning, but I'll do it because my kid is usually up at five, so I have to be up at five. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Jillian, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. You are so inspiring, and your story is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for being unapologetically you. Thank you for having me. We're so happy you joined us, and we hope this story inspired you to be unapologetically you. Join us next time for another remarkable journey. And if you or someone you know has a story to share, please reach out to us on our website at unapologeticallyyoupodcast.com. Don't forget to like us on Instagram and Facebook at unapologeticallyyoupodcast. And please rate and subscribe on whatever platform you listen in on so that we can continue to inspire you.